Today we come to uh, the last in a, a series of messages that we have been uh, looking each week at a different uh, lie, we believe. We asked about 30 people to help us develop um, a list of common things that people think. When analyzed in light of Scripture, we find that they turn out not to be true. And so these are definitely not all the lies that we can believe, of course, but there are perhaps some of the more common things we find ourselves, maybe without even realizing it, living every day in light of these ideas, when in fact they turn out not to be true. Uh, last week, uh, Hansley dealt with um, money and possessions, and you came back. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, Hansley did a great job. I don't know where he went. Thank you. Thank you for opening the scriptures for us. So today we're going to look at uh, one that our hope is will um, aptly summarize everything else we've looked at and give us a way of um, implanting these ideas deep down in our hearts that you can continue to come back to. And that is uh, what I feel is what is real. Uh, I don't know of a better way to summarize most of what we've looked at today. Let me see if I can frame it in this way for you. Two people get laid off from work. Uh, one spirals into depression, seems to lose his identity and drive altogether. The other tenaciously begins applying for new jobs. And his mindset is that God must have something better for me. The loss of the job is exactly the same. The difference is in their minds. Two people suffer from cancer. One becomes bitter, angry, and despairing. The other seems to strangely get stronger in spirit while weakening in body. The cancer is the same. The difference is in their minds. Two people have very painful childhood. One walks around rejected, alienated, and untrusting. The other chooses to find the little bit of good that existed in the home. The childhood painful experiences are the same. The difference is in the mind. Two people live with very meager resources. Finding enough money to meet the basic requirements of life seems to be a constant issue. One of them is consumed with envy. The other is full of gratitude for what he has. The lack of resources is the same. The difference is in their minds. Two people are single much later into adulthood than they expected. Both want to be married to godly men and raise children who love God. One walks around insecure and lonely. The other does pray that God would bring a spouse or change her desires. But in the meantime, she involves herself deeply in the life of the church. The singleness is the same. The difference is in their minds. Which kind of person do you want to be? There's only one person in the world that can make that choice. It's you. My dad, often as I was growing up, would tell me something that I just despised. And it turned out to be true. Don't you hate that when that happens? He often used to say, it's not so much what happens to you that will determine your life, but it's how you choose to think about it. He was exactly right. Which person do you want to be? You will make the choice 
And it's not a choice you make one time that resolves the issue for the rest of your life. It's a choice you make dozens of times every single day. And that choice essentially comes down to this question. Do I base my life on what I feel or on what is real? Often the two are not the same. Do I base my life on what I feel or on what is real? One of the greatest lies we're tempted to believe is that what we feel on the inside is the truth. And if we'll just go with what we feel, then life will turn out the way we want it to. We're ending the series with this lie because it is where the rubber meets the road. The question of how you're going to live the rest of your life is largely built up solely in your mind and how you choose to think about the life that you're dealt. You have little control, far little than we think, correct? But you have an awful lot of control over what you choose to do in the battlefield of the mind. Many of us base our lives not on objective truth outside of us, but on our subjective feelings. If you give me just a moment to review, for those of us that have been around, it makes total sense that we would do that. One of the weeks we talked about the lie, you have your truth and I have mine. You remember that? Yes. Fantastic. At least one of us does. <laughs> Largely, our cultural concept of truth is you have your truth, you have your truth, you have your truth, and you have your truth. And all of them are truth. So person A and person D can believe something completely contradictory, but they can both be exactly right. And the illustration we used was, if that's the question of what is the best kind of pizza, that is completely fine and absolutely correct. But if it comes to questions of God, it comes to questions of morality, don't make your decision like you decide what kind of pizza. Because if person A's concept of God and person D's concept of God contradict each other, they can't both possibly be correct. But friends, that is the world we live in. It is a foregone conclusion that you can reach your own conclusion about truth and be exactly right. And the most intolerant thing you can possibly do is tell someone, I don't think that's true. And so in that cultural context, it would make complete sense for us to look inside to determine what's right and wrong. Right? It makes total sense. It is the byproduct of the larger worldview that we've bought into. Because if you determine truth for yourself, then you're not going to look outside for that truth. You're going to look inside for it. If there's no absolutes, if there's nothing truly objective, it's what's right for you isn't necessarily what's right for me, then it makes total sense that feelings would be given priority over truth. Because truth doesn't exist. We'll look inside us to determine whether something is right or wrong. Therefore, we let feelings determine what we'll accept as fact. I don't think those that built this cultural conception for us, and 
If you ever question the importance of academics, just take this as specimen A. The reason we look at truth the way we do is because Western Europe, educational world, taught us to. And it was filtered down through our society, through the university. Now, the interesting thing is the secular Western university, say, for example, in France, where much of this came from, would not teach this anymore. It has reached the conclusion that this worldview doesn't make sense. But culture lags behind. So that is the reality that we now live in. If you live with the faulty assumption that what you feel is most important, then your life is going to be a roller coaster. It is going to be a constant series of ups and downs. Sometimes it's going to be fun and you're going to have your hands up. And other times you're going to be screaming because it feels like you're about to die. That's the way life is. If my life is ultimately built on my own internal barometer of right and wrong. An English preacher many years ago said this. I suppose that one of the greatest problems in our life in this world, not only for Christians, but for all people, is the right handling of our feelings and emotions. Oh, the havoc that is wrought in the tragedy, the misery, the wretchedness that are to be found in the world simply because people do not know how to handle their own feelings. Who would admit in this room that that is you? A few. (laughs) It was rhetorical. Because that's most all of us. There are a few of us that are, are abstract thinkers. And we tend to base decisions out of what we think. But the majority of us are much more rooted in our feelings than that. So today I want us to take a long, hard look on what basing our lives on what we feel instead of what is real will do. We're going to do that in three ways. I'd like to visit with you for a few minutes about the perils of living with your feelings first. So just hold out for you. Why does it not make sense to live like that? What are the results of a life based on feelings? Second, I'd like us to consider the facts of rooting our life in truth. And then finally, give some concrete ways that we can go about that. So let me just give you two reasons to start with not to trust your feelings. All right. That's my my goal here is to convince you that you cannot depend upon your feelings. If you haven't figured that out yet, then here's two ways you can think about this. First is that feelings are constantly changing and are therefore generally unreliable. Your feelings are not steady. They do not stay the same. You cannot count on them processing information in the same way all the time. Do, do one of you want to stand and give us an example? We all know this. We've experienced this. And yet we get up day after day after day and continue to believe we can trust our feelings. Just one example. If you have a roommate, have you ever noticed how one day your roommate can do something that you think is cute and endearing? And the next day they can do the exact same thing and it make you want to rip their heads off. Same exact action, and I was careful not to use spouse there. Same exact action, 
completely different response. What's the difference? It's because of what you feel. Now, where do, where do your feelings come from? Here's the confusing part. Your feelings are not an entity in and of themselves. Your feelings come from your thoughts. But the automatic thoughts that you have produces the thoughts that you're aware of. So if you're not a thinking person, this will be a little complicated for you. You and I have minds that are constantly going. They're constantly going. Some of us faster than others. Some of us a little sluggish. But we are constantly thinking. And we have a whole set of thoughts that are called automatic thoughts. They're just there. They're at the subconscious level. They process the stuff of everyday life. And they are different based on whether or not you've eaten, how much sleep you've gotten, what somebody said to you when you first got to work, how you chose to handle the people driving on your way to school, what somebody said to you three weeks ago that you think you've forgotten. All of those things impact the automatic thoughts that you have, which therefore impacts the thoughts that you're aware of yourself having. Now, you didn't know you were coming for psychobabble today, did you? But this is the way that we live. So one day the roommate seems endearing. The next day you want to rip their heads off. That doesn't really have anything to do with that other person. It has everything to do with how well you've taken care of yourself and how you're choosing to exercise your thoughts. Feelings don't occur in a vacuum. Any circumstance can affect your feelings. Therefore, your circumstances are constantly changing, so your thoughts are going to be constantly changing. You simply cannot trust your feelings to determine how you should react to other people. A second, another reason not to trust your feelings is that feelings are based on perception. So they're subjective. Did you know that the way you look at things isn't necessarily correct? Have you ever had that pointed out to you? You don't like that when that happens, do you? But our filter through which we view life is built out of our own experiences, our background, our personalities, painful things. And so therefore, when we look at things, we don't see them objectively. We see them subjectively. Therefore, we, we will process that information differently. They're based on our perception, so they're subjective. I'd like to show you an example of this in the scriptures. This is the most famous one I'm aware of to reveal that feelings are not always faithful to reality and you can't trust them. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18 is in the Old Testament. It is right before 2 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, as you're turning there, very quickly, because we're going to just pick up a little tiny piece of this story and it's midway. There's four people you need to know who they are before we read this. One is a guy named Ahab. Ahab at this point is the king of Israel. The first two thirds of your Bible, the dominant storyline is God creating a people called the Israelites from whom Jesus would come. So if the first two-thirds confuse you, that's basically what it's about. 
In the Old Testament, these are God's people. It's the way they're framed. So that's King Ahab. He's the king. Second is Jezebel. Jezebel is the not so nice, evil, wicked king of queen of King Ahab. The queen had a whole bunch of people called prophets. They were people that would voice, follow her gods. And I'll explain that in just a second. The third person you need to be aware of is something called Baal, or more commonly called Baal. Baal, the word means master or lord. There's a long history behind Baal or Baal. We don't have time to track there today. I'm sure you're massively disappointed. But in essence, just get the big picture. This is false gods that people were worshiping. Finally, there is the good guy in the story, the hero, Elijah. Elijah was the true prophet of God. And for a period of time, he was the only one left. So we're picking up the story where God's people, the vast majority of them, have turned against God. And the prophets of God, who are supposed to be the mouthpieces representing what God says, all of them had turned away except for one. Have you ever been in a party or in an apartment or sitting in a classroom where you were the only voice for the one true God? Have you been in that setting? That is uncomfortable at best. That's the setting Elijah found himself in. So let's see what happens. First Kings 18, verse 17. When Ahab, so this is king, remember the person with power. When Ahab saw him, Elijah, he exclaimed, So it really is you, you troublemaker of Israel. I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers. For you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord, and you have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Some of you remember a few years ago when uh, Obama came to Arizona and the governor went out to see him on the uh, tarmac. Do you remember seeing that image? What was she doing? Right? So even in our culture where we do not in any way respect authority, in this culture, you did respect authority. The king had some machismo going on. He was the authority. And Elijah's saying, I'm not the one causing the problems. You are. That's pretty bold, isn't it? And he's alone. He's standing alone with his finger in the face of the king saying, you are the troublemaker. You have disobeyed God. Now, the story goes on. We won't read it all. But here's what happens. Elijah gets pretty fired up and he says to the prophets of the false gods, let's see who's following the true God. So this is a real famous story in the Old Testament. You can go to where it happened today. There's a gigantic statue of him there. And everyone asks, uh, what's the deal with the sword? Which is just weird to me because it's intrinsic in the story. It's one of those stories you read as a kid. It's, it's like Noah's Ark. I always think it's hilarious when we have kids themes of Noah's Ark. Because what happened with Noah's Ark? God slaughtered everyone except Noah and his family. That's not a childhood story. 
Okay, Elijah is another one of those stories. There's some troubling stuff that went down. God is the God who's in charge. He gets to do what he wants to do. Some of that doesn't sit very well with me. Some of it doesn't sit very well with you. He's still God. What he does is what is right. We come to him to hear what's truth. We don't bring it to him to tell him what's truth. But that's for free and that's for another day. So these two groups get together, Elijah and the prophets. And they decide, Elijah gets them on the, um, the largest double dog dare of history. He tells them, you build an altar and you ask your God to light that baby up. I'll build my altar and I'll ask my God to light it up. Whichever one gets lit up is the true God. That's what happens. So if you don't know the story, the one set of prophets beg and plead and ask, and they do it for a long, long, long time. Elijah mocks them. At one point, he literally says, literally, now you read it if you want. I'm not making this up. Maybe your God is outgoing number two. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's sleeping. I mean, the, the boldness of this guy is incredible. So all day long, nothing happens. So Elijah gets a buck, whole bunch of buckets of water, wets down his altar, and then asks God to do this. Verse 36. At the usual time of offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed. Here's all he says. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I've done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. What would happen if we prayed like that? Not for our comfort, but for God's glory. How different would your praying be if you prayed like that? How much more often would we get a yes? Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. And it even licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their face to the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord, He is God. Elijah, circumstantially, had no reason to pray that kind of prayer. Remember, he's alone. He's not the king. There are no other prophets there standing for God. And yet he prayed one of the most bold prayers in the whole Bible. And God, in this case, chose to answer with a yes. He stood strong. From a human perspective, that seems irrational. But from a God perspective, it makes complete sense. Elijah was living in this order. Truth first feelings second. 
Truth first, feelings second. Now you would think somebody like that would have the whole thing mastered. You would think somebody that God would answer in a prayer that's clearly supernaturally involving his unique work in that moment. You would think that like he had a bat phone and could talk to God and get a yes any time he wanted. You would think that this kind of person always lived truth first, feelings second. Correct? At least I would. At least I would think that somebody willing to stand alone and shake his finger at the king would have reached the height of spiritual maturity and would not have another struggle. But the very next story tells a very different tale. Chapter 19, verse 2. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me. If by this time tomorrow I have not killed you, just as you killed them. And here's the part that is oddly encouraging. Elijah was afraid and he fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went out alone in the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. For I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. Is that not incredible? Now, do me a favor and do something really weird. Be honest. Is that not a little shocking? One day... This man stands alone in a, in a moment in which if God didn't show up and do something supernatural, everything was lost. And the very next scene, the very next day, he says to God, my life is so horrible, I want to die. He prays a suicidal prayer. Incredible. What changed? Did God change? No. Did his circumstances change? Not really. What changed? Elijah went from being willing to stand alone to crumbling in fear. And he made that change in just a couple of hours. It's incredible. Besides Elijah's feelings, nothing changed. He was scared of one woman. He felt alone, defeated, and without hope. What changed? What changed is he went from truth first, feelings second, to feelings first, truth second. Now, why? We can come up with lots of conjectures. But the important part is to see that this can happen to anybody. Because if that can happen to Elijah, it can most certainly happen to you. We can see God do incredible things 
and then turn right around and be filled with doubt and fear and anger and worry. We have spiritual amnesia. We can forget the works of God such that we live in fear when He's just poured out an amazing work before us. When we take our eyes off God and what He did for us at the cross, our perspective will be harmful. It will naturally drift from God, not towards Him. Feelings are based on perception and they can't be trusted. Now, if that hasn't convinced you, you have no hope of being convinced. Because Elijah was an incredible man of God, and it happened to him. Real quick, let's turn to a more happy way of looking at this. Here's a couple facts about living first in truth, not feelings. We should put truth first because reality is found in Scripture, not in your feelings. The Scriptures say in Psalm 12, verse 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. We don't talk that way, but that's a way of saying the words of Scripture have gone through a refining process such that you can trust them. That anything the Bible says, when understood in light of the way it's saying it, when taken as it's meant to be taken, you can count on. It's trustworthy. It's dependable. You can take it to the bank. 100% of the time. For if God is who He says He is, if He's King of kings, Lord of lords, protector, creator, all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect Father, completely true Savior, then wouldn't it make sense to trust what He says? Wouldn't it make sense that He's dependable? Now, some of you have a really good objection right now. And that's what about this and this and this and this. But I'd encourage you to look back on those experiences with a different lens. And that lens is, did God lie or did I misperceive what took place? Did God say one thing and do another or did I misunderstand what he really said? Because invariably what you'll find is what was wrong was not God, but it was our perception. It was our perspective. It was our misunderstanding. And I don't say that lightly because the hardest experiences in life are the times in which we misunderstand what God said he would do. I don't think there's something more difficult to process through. God promises if I do the right thing, then I will remain healthy. My marriage will work out. I will get a marriage. My job will be secure. We have all this other stuff that we insert in as promises of God when he doesn't promise those things. And that's tough stuff. I don't say that lightly. But what changed was not God's truth, but our perception. God's perspective isn't limited and it's not tainted. So we can trust him. Another reason we can trust truth is that God has objectively demonstrated his love for us in the gospel. Scripture's full of promises 
And chief among them is what you get if you respond to the gospel call. The beauty of believing in the gospel is that the crucifixion and resurrection are rooted in actual events. And I don't think really for many of us we've taken time to process that. So scripture is not wishful thinking about things that we desire to be true. It's not a laundry list of potential spiritual realities. And just pick the one you like the most. It is, contrary to most other religions, it is rooted in objective events that have already occurred. And so, really, honestly, all you have to do is say, did the cross happen? Did the resurrection happen? If so, then Christianity must be truthful. If not, then you're wasting your time here. And so we have the opportunity to look outside of ourselves to something that's claiming to be truthful. And it's rooted in events, not in the perception of warm, fuzzy feelings. The cross and resurrection didn't happen in our perception. They happened in reality. So I'd ask you, if you're here today and you haven't placed faith and trust in Christ, and there's many of you, what are you waiting for? If the cross is truthful and the resurrection is truthful, then it objectively proves everything else that God claims about himself. And if you believe those events happened, then God has laid claim on your life. And he loves you. And he desires for you to have the joy of following him. And you can turn from yourself to him and find what you've been looking for everywhere else. One of the most popular books out right now, um, as part of what's called the New Atheism, its end rebuttal against Christianity is, it's just too good to be true. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Because if the cross and the resurrection happened, then how can I take a posture of no? It is the test. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Another reason we can count on the truth is that feelings anchored in the truth of the gospel are reliable and trustworthy. So I want to say this very clearly today. Some of us are people that that are feelers. We live according to our feelings. Feelings aren't necessarily bad. They just need to be put in the proper order. They are the caboose, not the locomotive. They matter. Now, why do they matter? They matter because they are the dashboard of your heart. They matter because they reveal to you what's going on inside of you. So they make a difference. They're not to be ignored. They're just not to be what you base life on. In Christ, you have a rock-solid pardon. If you're in Christ, then God has acquitted you of all the charges against you. So you can be free of shame and condemnation. God declared you right with Him. You have peace with Him. 
So what you have to do is not try to earn that, but live in light of the fact you already have it. You have a rock solid future. Your future is already provided for by God. You don't have to fear God's wrath or where you'll go when you die. It's already decided. You have a rock solid presence. Did you know that everywhere you go and everything you do as a Christian, God is with you? So when you feel alone, the thing to do is not to fix that by running to the TV. It's to remind yourself of the truth that God's with you. You have a rock solid acceptance. Regardless of where you've done or whose will you've followed, if you've given your life to Christ, then God has accepted you. You're not on a performance based acceptance program. He has loved you and embraced you and forgiven you. You have a rock solid power. What would your life be like? What would your life be like if you really believed that you could say no to sin and yes to God? How would it change the rest of your day today? You already have it. The problem is your feelings will tell you you don't. But this kind of life, a life rooted on the solid rock, not shifting sand, doesn't just happen. It's got to be cultivated. The ground of that soil is hard and it's got to be tilled. It's got to have manure put on it. It's got to be worked. So let me end today with a few suggestions for you about how to do that. You can't force yourself into spiritual maturity. But you can position your heart in such a way that God will till up the hard-hearted. That He'll make your heart soft ground where the Word of God can grow. You can position yourself in such a way that God will water you. And your feelings will begin to be second and truth first. So a couple suggestions for you. Decide daily what kind of mind you want to cultivate. This isn't a decision you make once and it works forever. It's something you've got to decide day after day after day after day after day. The scriptures tell us in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How does that happen? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Every day, ask yourself, am I vesting final authority in my emotions or in my beliefs about God? Do I run to things other than God to deal with my thoughts or do I run to Him? How do you figure that out? Well, ask yourself the next time you have a negative emotion. What am I believing about God right now? Right now at this very moment, what am I believing? And what you'll find is there's a different set of beliefs that drive your life than the ones you confess when you're in this room. And the rest of life is about those two things coming together such that you see God for who He really is. 
Spend lots of time getting to know the God of Scripture and what He's done for you. And you'll find slowly that life begins to be shaped by truth, not feelings. Another thing you need to to do is to deeply invest in Christian community. I cannot overstate the value of godly friends. Godly friends can be the ones that come alongside you and say in the most loving, kind way, you're a moron. I cannot believe you're believing that lie again. Let's together go back to the scriptures and see the truth. Is there anyone, anyone, even just one person in your life who really knows you? Who you don't pretend around? Who accepts you just like you are? Who you could walk over to today when we're done and say, this is going on. And you would not be in the least bit concerned about their reaction. Do you have a single person like that? Friends, the community of faith, the church, is designed such that everyone who makes a commitment here could feel that way about everybody else. Now, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? But if we really believe the gospel, the gospel says, I am completely loved, accepted, embraced, forgiven, secure, forever. Then why would we not have that posture towards each other? It's illogical. Maybe the best thing you could do as a result of this message is cultivate one relationship like that. And the way you do that is not to go tell them the worst thing you've ever done, but maybe the third worst. Finally, I'll end with this. Friends, we need to talk to ourselves more than we listen to ourselves. The same author, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? What would it be like if you decided I'm going to not let my mind be a constant roll of garbage? But I'm going to choose what I think about. And I'm going to be a little bit crazy. I'm going to talk to myself. I'm going to tell myself the truth. I'm going to rehearse the gospel over and over and over and over and over. And then I'm going to get up and I'm going to do it again and again and again. The people that grow the most spiritually are not the smartest. They're not necessarily the people who've been walking with God the longest. They're not necessarily the people who give the most or serve the most. They're the people who do that the most. They speak truth to their own soul. So when your boyfriend breaks up with you and you feel all alone, remember, Jesus was abandoned and alone, so you'll never be alone. 
When you sin again and you've wrestled with this sin over and over and over and you feel like it's conquered you, remember Jesus died for that sin and set you free from it. When you face tragedy and you wonder if God loves you and cares about you, remember that at the cross we find the greatest tragedy and that God willingly entered it for you. When everything is going well, when you have kids that think you're fantastic, when your friends want to hang out with you, when your bank account has money, when you're driving a nice car, when your boss has just given you a promotion, when you have a growing ministry at church, when your reputation is such that people think well of you, and you're tempted to think, look at what I've done. Remember, Every gift you have was given to you by God. Talk to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. 